You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Great friends, good to have you with us today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman complete in all their powers is in the fight, in the spiritual fight. And right now, today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nation. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destinies. All right. Very good to have you with us. Thanks so very much. Hope you're enduring. Uh, right now, as I record this, it's in the middle of hot, hot, hot in the deep south in Mississippi. When it's hot in Mississippi, it's hot. So, uh, but, uh, but I'm dealing with it. You're dealing with it wherever you're at. So thanks for hanging in there. And soon it will be snowing, not in Mississippi, but somewhere. And that will be a good day in America. Listen, uh, Got a lot of things going on, and uh, thanks so very much for being patient with us here at uh, Life Changing Discipleship. I want to tell you about Ethan Kelly with Providence Capital Management, specializing in personal and institutional investment management. Check him out. I think you'll be very glad that you did so, and you can check him out by going to ProvidenceCM.com, ProvidenceCM.com, or Ethan at ProvidenceCM.com if you just want to get a hold of him. Listen, I trust the guy. Love him. Appreciate him. You'll love him as well. So uh, we just came out with a new book, a new book with Baker Academic, which means it's a big time book. And uh, it's also a provocative book. It's called The Doctrine of Good Works, Reclaiming and Neglected Protestant Teaching. Now, let me suggest to you why it is we wrote this thing and uh, and why it is, I think you need to get it. I it, It's kind of heady. Uh, you're going to have to be uh, kind of semi-intelligent to make through it, and all of you are. So, But as you make your way through it, I think you're going to find yourself very challenged. What has happened is this. We have weaponized the word works in evangelicalism, and I think it's created a scandal. In other words, what has happened is we've been so against works because we've said over and over, works can't save you, works can't save you, works can't save you. And so we have so opted in to that, that pretty soon works becomes a bad word. And pretty soon we don't do them because we don't have to do them because after all, we're going to heaven without them. And I would suggest you, you need to read the book because there are some interesting things here in. So, so let me just say, this is written by a gentleman named Tom McCall, uh, myself, and my son, Caleb Friedemann. Uh, Caleb is at Ohio Christian University. He's in the biblical department there, teaches uh, New Testament primarily. And uh, so what happens in this book is Tom deals with the historical and systematic theology part of the volume, Caleb deals with the Old Testament, New Testament part of the volume, and I deal with the practical part of the volume. That is how this thing works in and through the church when it works in and through the church. What kind of leadership, for instance, is necessary for it to work through the church, et cetera. And we highlight some churches that are getting it done. I can tell you right now, it's kind of hard to find the churches. And I have found how deep the scandal is in evangelicalism because there's so very few churches doing the regular week after week grunt work of the kingdom that absolutely has to be done 
for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, but it also has to be done if we're going to expand our own souls, if we're going to construct our own souls for the salvation he dreams for us. So the doctrine of good works, this is what happened. A couple of years ago, we were at Evangelical Theological Society, one of those places where you go and academics get together and they read papers to one another. I really don't like being at those meetings, but the truth is I find a lot of good opportunities come out of those meetings like this one. I'm standing in the back of a room with Tom McCall. Now, Tom McCall uh, used to go to school here at Wesley Biblical Seminary years. And I mean, years ago, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, he, he went to school here. And uh, and so I had an opportunity to be around him and would ask him, come babysit the kids, <laughs> which he did from time to time. And he was just a beautiful, beautiful guy to have around. Well, he's gone on to be not just beautiful, but brilliant. And he has uh, served uh, uh, 20 years or so at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, went to Asbury University, wanted to kind of get closer to his uh, theological heritage. Now he's working at Asbury Theological Seminary. And so we were standing in the back of a room and he was talking about this weaponization of the concept of works. He says, I'm tired of it. He said, hey, how would you like to write a book with me on works? And I said, man, yeah, let's do that. So it took some years. He was busy with other projects, but finally he came around saying, okay, now's the time. Let's do it. And by the way, why don't we add your son in to do the old New Testament data? I said, I, that sounds like a great volume. It's a very unique book because it talks about the doctrine of good works. Then it dives into the, uh, the biblical data. Then it actually steps back and says, now, when people are doing good works, what kind of things are happening to allow those good works to happen? So we wrote the book, and it's, it's been a, a really delightful thing. It's out now. We'd love for you to go get a copy of it. Amazon.com is one of the great places you can go to other places, but it's the doctrine of good works, reclaiming neglected Protestant teaching written by McCall Friedemann and Friedemann. Now, a lot of people are going to suggest, well, I know what the Bible says about works. The Bible doesn't like works, does it? And what we're going to say is, no, no, no. Look at the data. Oh my goodness. The data suggests that the Bible loves works. In fact, the Bible, I mean, some people go so far as to say it's necessary. Good works are necessary for salvation. Now, when you start saying that, that's fighting words to a lot of people. But let me, one of the things that Tom does in the book is he goes through and catches a lot of really interesting quotes. And Caleb caught a couple of these as well. But for instance, Martin Luther, beware. God will not ask you at, the, at your death and at the last day how much you have left in your will. Whether you've given so and so much to churches, he will say to you, I was hungry, you gave me no food, I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Take these words to heart. In other words, Luther's saying, oh, on the day of judgment, your works are definitely intertwined with your destiny. John Davenant, who uh, represented the Church of England at the Synod of Dort, said, we admit fully that God preserves and increases the gifts of grace in those who apply themselves to good works. And by the zeal of good works draws them on to the goal of salvation. Now that's remember it now, it's Senator of Dort. There <laughs> we're talking Luthers, we're talking Calvinists here, we're talking folks that you know got some opinions about a few things. Uh, Johann Gerhard. 17th century Lutheran church leader said uh, that good works are necessary because they're commanded by God, but they're also necessary because they allow and naturally follow 
uh, and bear witness to the genuine faith of justification as new creatures by works, by good works, repentant believers demonstrate their salvation. So if you are saved, guess what? You will be doing good works. He further explained, unless we wish to cast away our faith, lose God's grace and eternal life, and summon punishments of every kind, it is incumbent on us to pursue good works. They must produce true fruits of faith. So uh, Francis Turretin, Genevan Italian scholastic theologian, speaks for early modern reformed scholasticism when he encounters a query, are good works necessary for salvation? He says, we affirm. I mean, this thing goes on. Some of you may not know these names, but if you're a, if you're Calvinist, you will almost assuredly know the name Theodore Beza. And he was a French Calvinist theologian and says that good works are necessary for salvation because they have a necessary connection to true faith. Without good works, there is no true faith. But with true faith, there will always be good works. Now, this thing just goes on and on and on. And, and Tom finally says this. I mean, Tom McCall says, there's widespread agreement when you look across these guys. Good works are necessary for salvation. Lutherans and Calvinists, they were all on the same page back in the day. Good works are minimally necessary as a consequence of true saving faith. However, many major Reformed theologians go further in their articulation of the necessity of good works. Some Reformed theologians understand good works to be a medium or means of salvation. Others make a case that good works are nothing less than a condition of salvation. Others argue that good works are actually a cause of salvation. Wow. So... That's kind of why we throw this volume together. Now, I uh, it was really interested me that you could talk long and hard about works and never get to a guy like John Wesley. But when John Wesley finally does come up in, in uh, church history, he looks back at these guys and says, you know, they're right. And so what he'll say is, once you're saved, if you're going to keep your salvation, you need to be doing good works. There's no way to go on to entire sanctification without good works. You've got to be doing good works. Then you've got to go on to entire sanctification, but there's no way to keep that entire consecration, that entire sanctification without good works. And so he just he says they are necessary for salvation. And of course, the life of salvation basically suggests that we're talking about the abundant life. And this book is basically about the abundant life. In fact, very few books talk about the abundant life like this book talks about it because without good works, you're not experiencing the abundant life of salvation that God wants for you. And so this book, The Doctrine of Good Works, we hope that you'll run out, you buy a copy, you buy Christmas copies, you'll buy birthday copies, you'll get this book because I think it's so very incredibly important for all of us to get it. We have been running away from good works. And when we run away from good works, what we do is we set up a cultural scenario where people look at our lives and say, I'm not very compelled toward that life. I don't think I want that kind of life. I think basically our youth today have run away from this life of salvation because they've seen the church and what they've rejected has been a good thing. They've rejected a life without works. 
and thought, if 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 Christianity doesn't work for justice, if Christianity isn't concerned about the poor and the oppressed, if, if Christianity is not concerned about good works up and down the line, then we don't want to have anything to do with it, nor should they want anything to do with it. We've got to be people that suggest to ourselves, suggest to our programs of discipleship, suggest to our Sunday school classes and to our 5Q discipleship groups that, yes, we believe in discipleship. We believe in good works and they have to go together. I uh, I think I've told this before here, but I got a friend and now deceased friend died during COVID in India. I got an Indian friend named Joel Hemakumar. He's the son of a one of my best friends, R.C. Gunakumar, but Joel Hemakumar uh, is in India and one day finds himself in America. He's doing some fundraising. So I say, hey, man, let's go have lunch. We're sitting down having lunch and I look across at him and I say, listen, Joel, uh, you're a student at our seminary, but I got so much I need to learn from you. Can I just ask you a few questions? He says, far away. First question, what is the biggest barrier between Indians of India, Indians receiving Christ? What's the barrier? What's the biggest thing? Why don't they come in droves to Christianity? Because I know they like Jesus. He says, audio visual problems. Now we include this in the book. I, I said, audio visual problems? What are you talking about? He says, what they hear, audio, what they hear us saying, they don't see visual. They don't see us doing. So we talk about Christ. We talk about Christ likeness. We talk about discipleship. We talk about following him, but we don't do it because if we do follow him, guess where he leads. One of the, one of my favorite Bible studies that I do with people is say, man, let's go to see what happens when Jesus calls the disciples to him. And right before the Sermon on the Mount in chapter four, uh, it says, all right, so he starts walking beside the Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come follow me. And I'll send you out to be fish, to, to, to fish for people. And so here, here they come. And then goes on from there, sees two others and basically same thing. Follow me. So they start following him. Where do they follow him to? Well, to a life of service. Because the next paragraph says, so. Jesus, with these disciples, goes throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But here we go. Healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about them spread everywhere. And people begin bringing to him the untouchables of the culture. Those people out on the fringes. In fact, many of them unclean by uh, Jewish law. But they be begin bringing him these unclean people, those with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he heals them. And when he does that, and here's key, when he does a Christ-like thing, a loving thing, a caring thing, a healing thing for many people, large crowds take notice. Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis from Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they start getting excited about Jesus and following him. So the whole point is, if we say, and this is what uh, Joel was trying to tell me, if we say, follow me is the call to Christ, then we've got to admit that the next thing has to happen as well. He leads us out to the untouchables. He leads us out to the disenfranchised. He leads us out to the poor, to the widow, to the fatherless, to the oppressed. We've got to go with him. 
If we're not doing those things, we're probably not following him. So one of the things John Wesley comes along and does is say, okay, we have something called the means of grace. There are works of piety and works of mercy. So the works of piety are like things like daily prayer and daily scripture reading and, and taking of the Lord's Supper and weekly fasting and, and getting together in groups, both large and small. That's the works of piety. And most of Christianity today, when we make disciples, that's the stuff we're interested in getting people into. Let's get people into those works of piety. Let's get them to have a, a daily prayer life. Let's teach them how to read scripture. Let's take, teach them how to hear scripture. Uh, make sure that Lord's Supper is happening. Fasting, not so much anymore. And that's to our detriment. We got to be people of fasting. And, and then, of course, getting together in groups. John Wesley says these are absolutely critical, but not as critical as the works of mercy. So the means of grace had two parts, works of piety and the works of mercy. And by works of mercy, he had a nice long list, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, entertaining the stranger, visiting those who are in prison, visiting the sick, the variously afflicted, instructing the ignorant, awakening the sinner, quickening the lukewarm, confirming the wavering, comforting the feeble-minded, assisting and supporting the tempted, contributing to the lives of the saving of souls from death. He says, now, if you'll notice, that's a nice little blend of evangelism and compassion ministry. But my church, what we try to do is say, let's not juxtapose, let's not say, hey, let's set them across from each other. Let's not bifurcate those things. Let's put them together. So in our church, we say, yeah, we're going to go out and do a compassionate thing and lead people to Christ as we do so. But this is what John Wesley said. Thus should the disciple show his zeal for works of piety, but much more for works of mercy. Whenever, therefore, one interferes with the other, works of mercy are to be preferred, even reading, hearing, prayer, or to be omitted or to be postponed at charity's almighty call. When we're called to relieve the distress of our neighbor, whether in body or soul. He said that kind of thing from time to time to remind his people, we need to be people of action. We need to be people of works. We need to be people of mercy. And no, you don't get to say, yeah, I think it's important to send some money that other people might do those things. No, you need to go yourself. Now there's all kinds of, I don't want to give a whole book away. You need to get this book, The Doctrine of Good Works, uh, put out by Baker Academic. Now, when you get it, I'm going to tell you, one of my favorite parts of the book are the last couple of paragraphs. I just want to read these paragraphs to you. It's so special because we hear over and over and over again that there was a criminal on the cross that ended up in paradise, right? And what had that criminal done? Nothing. Did he ever do a work? Don't think so. But we put two paragraphs in to maybe raise a question mark there. Can I read you these two paragraphs, last two paragraphs of the book? Perhaps nowhere is the radically gracious nature of salvation more evident than in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Luke's account of the passion narrative, we see this part of the story. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? I mean, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, 
remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, two important observations stand out as particularly relevant for us. First, we can see that as soon as this criminal begins to respond to God's grace, he engages in works of piety and works of mercy. For he both admits his position before God and looks to Christ for rescue, as well as entreats the other criminal to reconsider and repent. And second, this criminal saved by grace. He's done nothing to merit salvation by his own omission. He's a criminal and a sinner who has not earned salvation, nor can he do anything to build up enough spiritual or moral credit with God. He only has hours and perhaps minutes of restricted, excruciating, painful life left. He can't save himself. Without grace, there's no hope for him. But there is grace. And thus, there is hope. Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're saved by grace, my dear friends, from first to last. And we are saved so that we can do good works. But it's fascinating that in this story, huh, he talks to Jesus. We consider that prayer. And he stands up for Jesus. And in this scenario, we call that a work of mercy. What led this prisoner to paradise? <laughs> grace indeed. But the means of grace are works of piety and works of mercy. And y'all, I hope you will find a way to make these kinds of things come alive in your life, in your family's life, and make these kinds of things come alive in your church. Now, one of the things uh, I do in this book is try to get together some practical data. And uh, the, the basic gist of what we found is when this kind of stuff happens in a church, it's because people are leading by example. There's, there are leaders, there are pastors, there are Sunday school teachers that adopt the means of grace. They're always intentionally biblical about it. So if you want to do it and do it well, get biblical and look in the Bible and then preach the Bible. Learn from your community. You're going to go and reach out to certain hurting people. Learn from them. You don't have to go with all the right answers. You just need to go learn and say, now, based on what you're telling me, this is perhaps what we need to do to work together. And then just start something. Something's got to get started. Something has to begin. Get in there. You might make a mistake. These churches that we highlight in this volume, they're always making mistakes, but at least they were trying. They would start something and something would work. Let the laity lead. Listen, you're always going to find that over time, over the long haul, laity lead better than clergy. Let them go. Be compassionate and evangelistic. In other words, put the things together. You don't put works of mercy over there and evangelism over here. They belong together. You want to build in your church a culture of participation. In other words, that's what we do here. We don't come, sit around, hear messages, go to Bible studies, and then think everything's okay. Everything's not okay. You build a culture of participation because you expect in your church's participation. And they simply open wide the doors. In other words, when you begin ministering to people, they're going to start showing up at your church. And guess what? If you minister to the hurting, the hurting will start showing up. 
If you minister to the poor, the poor will start showing up. In our church, we minister a lot to the prisoners. Guess what? Prisoners show up. When it, when that happens, you can't freak out. You got to praise the Lord. Open wide the doors. And then, frankly, for these kind of churches to happen, it's hard for an established church. Established church needs to do it. But it's hard for established churches to turn around and get this kind of thing done. We need to plant a lot more churches with this kind of thing in mind. If we do, listen, the best days of the church are ahead. If we don't, then we're going to deepen the scandal. And the scandal is basically saying, listen, what we have done for too long is we've had a primary reliance on methodologies that are simply cognitive or, you know, sermon, hearing, uh, Bible studies, hearing, um, the message hearing, and all we do is hear, we hear, we hear, we hear, and we never respond the way we ought to respond. And so, so we got curriculum and studies and classes and small groups within the four walls of churches and homes, but we're insulated from the interaction with the lost and the needy. And this book suggests when we begin to engage with the lost and the needy, we'll find that there's a cost, there's a price. Unfortunately, we've been so used to cheap grace for so long, cheap grace for so long that uh, we've got used to it. And we think that's the good life. It's not the good life. If you want a hilarious, abundant life, then guess what? Start finding a model that will produce biblical community, sacrificial service, and holy character. And what you will find that if you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples just sit around and talk. I think the Lord wants more. I think the Lord needs more. I think we need more. If we're going to be all the people of God that Jesus ever imagined we could be, we need to engage. Now, I, I, I love that word engage. John Stott once said there are only two possible attitudes which Christians can adopt towards the world. You can either escape or you can engage. Escape. Basically means turning our backs on the world, segregating ourselves from the discomfort of the problems that beset us and stealing our hearts against the cries for help. Listen, it could be fairly surmised that a lot of institutions for ministry training and even local churches have too often conducted their instruction and disciple just that way by means of escape. But engagement, says Stott, requires turning our faces toward the world in compassion weeping over the things that break the heart of God and getting our hands dirty and worn in service. What a difference the faith of this nation, of your state, of your city in particular would know if schools and churches and primarily local churches emulated the discipleship methods of Jesus. And, you know, guys like John Wesley, when they come along, because what you're going to find is Jesus was a man of the means of grace, works of piety, and works of mercy. And indeed, and in fact, he asks us to follow him to the places of desperate need in our communities. And yep, you got some desperate need nearby. You might have to look for it, but you need to find it. Now, I hope that in coming weeks, I can get uh, Tom perhaps in here, maybe uh, Caleb in here, and we can talk further about this. And what they found is they were investigating good works, both in theology and in the Bible. But I'm going to tell you, friends, it is so absolutely necessary. Let's follow Jesus. Get the book, The Doctrine of Good Works, Reclaiming a Neglected Protestant Teaching. 
All right, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listening to the Life Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedemann. Always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life Changing Discipleship today. We want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.